You're listening to a sermon from First Family Church from the series, Ordinances of the Church. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, I told you I was excited to kind of begin to share more about the second of the ordinances with you this morning, and I am. I'm really kind of ramped up to get into this discussion, this message. It's going to be a lot of fun today. So why don't you take your Bibles and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to get started. Can we do that? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 By way of review, this is a two-week mini-series, we'll call it, on the ordinances. It's not a two-week series on the, what? Sacraments. It's a two-week series on the ordinances. We believe these are the two things that Christ left the church to do until He comes. The first one being baptism, which by way of review again, it's that immersion that pictures, promotes, and preserves the gospel. It's that public way of identifying with Christ and his church. And in case you were wondering, this marks you out as belonging to God and not the world. Inward regeneration occurs, conversion happens, and then there's this public baptism. And people see that and notice it and they say, oh, you you have a new master. You belong to a different king. And your response is, yes, amen. This is what baptism does. It is a, an ordinance we're to keep as we make disciples, and it's public. We talked about it last week. The second of these is what we call the Lord's Supper, or you could use the word communion. We're going to see today that communion is actually that time when the church declares and delights in the saving death of Christ by eating in unity a meal that remembers who saves us eternally. And this, like baptism, marks us out as distinct from the world, okay? Now, church, I need you to just, with that on the screen, I want you to look at me and think with me for a second. The common phrase in these two, we'll call them definitions, is that something makes us distinct, right? And they're both public. Baptism and then communion. And can I just encourage you, brother to sister, brother to brother, maybe pastor to sheep, however you want to word that, can I just encourage you to embrace your distinction? I've told you for about a year and a half, since we were in Acts, I think, and I I mentioned this, and it's kind of been on my heart for about a year and a half, that, that I think our attraction is in our distinction. And I have no desire as your pastor to lead a church or to lead a family or to lead a life that seems to, that has this desire to try to mold into the culture as much as possible so that all those who aren't believers will think, I'm just like them. And maybe in that way, you know, they'll probably see that I'm pretty normal and they can be like me. Like, I, I get being hospitable. It's not an issue of being respectable. All those, that's not what we're talking about. We always want to be polite. Amen, church? But there are two things that we, we don't get to, like, run from. At least two things. Two of those are baptism and communion. Public things that say, hey, we belong to God. We're His people. He's purchased us. So I just want to encourage you. Embrace your distinction. Communion is one of those public ways the church gathers and remembers who it is that purchased them. And every time we do it, we're delighting in what God has done for us. We're declaring what God has done for us. 
So that's why the church gathering should never be one of apology or um, uh, fear or even timidity. It should be one of boldness, clarity about who it is that has brought any sense of significance to our life eternally. And that's Jesus Christ. Amen? So that's what's going on here. One of the ways we do that is in communion, the second of the ordinances. I want to take some time this morning to lay out for you what I think are important elements in communion. And I want to use the longest passage about communion in the New Testament. You recall last week, we kind of talked about baptism from the one verse that was part of the context of the largest amount of people being baptized, 3,000 at one time in the New Testament. And we saw that baptism was simply conversion, immersion, distinction. That's the normative regular, consistent New Testament pattern. Here's the longest section of Scripture about communion, the Lord's table. What does it tell us about communion? Well, we're going to see again that it's, the, it's when the church comes together and we delight and declare the saving death of Christ. And that's kind of what marks us out. So let's see what Paul said about this thing called the Lord's table. We'll not look at every single verse between 17 and 34. That's the general context of this passage. But I will notice four corrections within this section of Scripture that Paul gives to this Corinthian church about how they were going about the Lord's Supper. After I briefly walk you through those verses, I want to take a number of questions today. Sixteen came in in the first service. I don't think we addressed them all. Some were repetitive, but we'll cover a number in the second service here today. And kind of have a conversation. In first service, I even called on one of our elders out of the blue to come explain something. He loved it. I loved it. But the crowd was like, man, he called that dude out like right on the spot. So elders in here, get ready. You never know, right? Um, But I want to take some time to kind of have that Q&A format this morning about this important topic. And then we'll end with one final verse as we observe communion today. All right? So here's the passage in play. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17 through 34 is the larger context. And Paul actually begins there saying that he's not got good things to say to them about how they observe the Lord's Supper. He says that when they do it, actually it's worse for them, not better. And the reason is in verse 19 because of, excuse me, verse 18 is because of divisions. In other words, when they were observing the Lord's Supper, it seemed to be more divisive than unifying. And that's the opposite, uh, it's opposite of the real goal. In fact, here's six words to remember. In baptism, watch this, in baptism, we are, it's, it's one person into many. So one into many is kind of what that signifies. But in communion, it's many into one. I thought you can kind of distinguish the two ordinances. So the goal of communion is for all of us to come together and drink out of one cup to partake of one bread, signifying we're all one. We're one in Christ and we focus on him. It's Many into one, baptism is one into many. What Paul's saying here is this, the opposite effect is, is being felt in Corinth because there's divisions among you. Paul said, in fact, I believe part of it. So how were divisions in this church happening in regards to the Lord's Supper? Here's what I think historically is going on. Listen very carefully. It seems to me from this scripture and from the his, history of this time period that in the church's life, that there were a number of different economic levels within the church, which is not much different than today. 
But when they would gather, the phrase come together is mentioned here, it's mentioned five times in these verses. When they would come together, some would bring a lot of food to share a meal. Others, maybe slaves of that time, weren't able to make it at that exact time. They might come in late. They weren't able to bring a lot of food. And so as people kind of trickled in at different times, were able to eat some food, others not much food, a lot of their classes, we'll use that word, divisions, the segments of the church seem to be highlighted. And so the, the rich people who may have owned some of the slaves, maybe they were indentured servants, but they were the household employees, they might come early with a lot of food. Sometimes then those who weren't able to make it because they were still working at those households perhaps, as they would come in, there wouldn't be much food with them. It seems like then other folks were eating a meal over here and other folks weren't. These other folks weren't sharing their meal. And so it ended up being like a, a collection of different people pocketed throughout the church. Some sharing, some not. Some having, some not. And what was intended to be a meal that unified was actually a meal that divided. Based on human standards. How much money you made, what kind of job you had, what color your skin was, your ethnicity, and so forth and so forth. And in the church, it really isn't about Jew or Gentile, bond or free or slave, right? We're one in Christ. And so the meal is designed to showcase and highlight unity, and they were finding the opposite occurring. So Paul says, I do not commend you in this. I think that's what he means when he says there's factions among you. There are divisions in there. Verse 20 begins to describe it more uh, specifically, and here's the first of his corrections. He corrects exactly what the problem is. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Hmm. So they were coming together to break bread. They were supposed to eat the Lord's Supper, but he's saying that's not what's happening. So what is happening? Look what he says here. In eating... Each one goes ahead with his own meal. So, to be very, um, very blatantly simple here, it wasn't the Lord's Supper, it was Jacob's Supper. It was Ed's Supper. It was Mike's Supper. It was Dan's Supper. It was Brant's Supper. Ronell's Supper. Brian's Supper. Adam's Supper. Does that make sense, guys? So how was that happening? Because they would bring their food, and instead of sharing, they just were like, hey, this is mine, back off. And they would often partake of the Lord's table within that entire meal, but because there was such division, classification, segmenting happening, it was very divisive and not unifying. Paul said, you know, you're not observing the Lord's Supper, you're observing your own supper. You're more worried about filling your own belly with your own food than actually putting aside your own needs for the sake of the church at large. I think that's what he means when he says here, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. In other words, you have maybe someone in a lower class who can't bring much coming in thinking they could share, but then someone who's in a higher class is able to bring much and they're just getting drunk and they're enjoying the physical aspects of it, so to speak, and they're beyond the limits. Someone over here has nothing. In, In other words, there's no unity being drawn from this. It's just all about the physical. It's all about their own needs. And so he says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? In other words, if your only goal is to get full in the belly, stay home. Do that in your houses. That's where you're supposed to take care of the physical aspect. When you come to church for the Lord's meal, it's about spiritual nourishment. He says, when we don't have spiritual nourishment as our goal, 
but instead are only concerned of our physical bodies, trying to make sure we're full and we've got our way. He says we despise the church of God. This is what's meant in the rhetorical question in verse 22. You despise the church of God. You humiliate those who have nothing. And what shall I say to you in this? Shall I commend you? I will not. Instead, he corrects them. So he says that the real true problem here is one of selfishness and division. You're letting human categories, man-made classifications, kind of set the table, no pun intended, okay? Instead, here's what our true focus should be, beginning in verse 23. Paul says, here's how it should be. I'm not going to commend you in this. Instead, I'll correct you by telling you how the Lord has instructed us to observe His Supper. For I received from the Lord, verse 23 says, that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night He was betrayed, He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it. And He said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So notice all the the possessive uh, nouns and pronouns here. Paul's making it clear, this is the Lord's Supper. It is His body. He's the one that took the bread. He's the one that initiated it. There's a lot of ownership happening here about this meal. No wonder it's called, whose supper? The Lord's Supper. It's not hard to figure out, church. It's the Lord's Supper, not our supper, not your supper. It's the Lord's Supper. He instituted it. Uh, He set the table, so to speak. He also did this with the cup. After supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Christ left us two commands. By the way, though his was within a meal as well, the last supper, or we would say even the Passover, it's interesting that he does not hear, the Lord does not dictate that we have an entire meal. I think it's permitted, but really what's mandated what's directed is simply the bread and the cup. That's what is the necessary elements. And of those two, they remember the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And verse 26 says, As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So when we eat the meal together, the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming, watch this, not anything about us. We're proclaiming the Lord's death, aren't we? Acts 20, he purchased the church with his own blood. So I think if you step back and take a look at this, what you're seeing is that the Corinthian context is one in which the meal was really all about them. It highlighted their efforts or lack of effort or situation. It highlighted their uh, abilities or inabilities. It highlighted everything about them, good and bad. And Paul says, you know what? The Lord's Supper is not meant to be about highlighting your differences. It's meant to be about highlighting our unity that Christ has brought at the cross in spite of all of our differences. Amen? In fact, think about our communion here. We'll do this in a few minutes. All of the different jobs in this room, the different addresses, the different economic levels, the different races, guess what? In that moment of communion, when we come and we share one juice, and one bread. We're saying there is one way we all are forgiven. And at that place, there is no difference. Amen, church? No one says, well, I don't need as much forgiveness as you. I I make more money. Baloney on that. Well, I don't need as much as you because I'm uh, where I live in the city or my name or who my parents were or what I drive 
All of that is just junk and bunk. When we come to the communion table, we're saying we're all at the same place. We are sinners who need God's grace. So it's many into one. Let me take a moment while I'm talking about how the supper is, was directed by the Lord to kind of mention some views that have come out of this. Here's the, probably the earliest mention of the Lord's table after the Lord had ascended. It's here in Corinthians by Paul. Just a, a few decades, of course, after Christ had ascended. From this time over hundreds of years, several uh, centuries, different views have developed from what I think is actually a quite simple procedure that Christ laid out. Would you not agree? Two things, two elements that are necessary, and then we remember the Lord's death in taking these two. Here are those views kind of on a progressive scale. It starts with what we would call memorialism. This is the view that the elements are just that. They're elements. They have nothing in them or about them. And we simply, in some of a ritualistic way, partake of them to remember the Lord's death, and then it's done. On the other end of the spectrum is transubstantiation, which is that the elements actually become the body and blood of the Lord Jesus once you ingest them. This is the traditional Roman Catholic view. And so each time that they are involved with the Eucharist, the priest holds up the elements at the next point when you ingest them and they become the body and blood. And so in some sense, they are re-sacrificing Christ. This is why I don't think transubstantiation is biblical or right. It violates Hebrews, which talks about the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, not a re-sacrificing. And it goes against blatant scripture, which says that basically uh, the bread and the cup are remembrances. They don't turn into the, uh, into the actual physical body of Christ. Between these two are two other views. I'll go backwards this way. There's what we call the realism view, and that's about the best word I can give you. It's the word used in most theological circles. It's called the real view, which says there's something happening here. Um, we're not sure what it is exactly. There's some mystery to it. The elements don't turn to the body of Christ or the blood of Christ, but there is uh, something significant happening. Uh, that's what we call realism. Excuse me. That would be in this section here. It's memorialism, realism. Here in third place is consubstantiation. And that would just be the view that um, they're not turning into the body and blood of Christ. So transubstantiation, consubstantiation, the real view, and then memorialism. You can kind of see the spectrum. Here they're just kind of elements, kind of a ritualistic approach. Over here it's um, unnecessary and unbiblical in how they approach it. You may say, well, where are you and where are we? Well, I think from consubstantiation back this way, you've got a lot of freedom. I tend to land probably in the area of the real kind of view. I'm probably not willing yet, as many of my Baptist friends are, <laughs> to say memorialist. I don't think this is a wrong view. I just think it's a stale view. And I'm probably going to get some criticism on that. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Um, I just kind of threw you a soft one. I'm not, I'm not there yet. I think something does happen at the communion table that I don't fully understand. I don't think it's 
their sacraments, but I think there's a sacramental effect in the ordinances where the grace of God that's sanctifying is experienced. So I'm not ready to say it's just a memorial and we're done with it. And they might not say that. That's how they view it. That's a good question. I don't know. But what I've read and what I've heard from people like that, most of them are bad because they just kind of see it as like it's a memorial, we do it, and we just move on. I think something real and present is in the communion table. Um, So that's kind of where I am. And I would say our church probably falls within one of these two realms, at least. Does that make sense? There's freedom in these three, though, okay? Maybe you have some different views, that's fine. Uh, Be aware of those four views. That's how a lot of folks approach 23 to 26. That's kind of what's developed over centuries. By the way, different reformers and church fathers have had different views. As I told you, the Roman Catholic Church has always held to this view and still does, which I think is unbiblical. Um, Luther tended to fall more in consubstantiation, realism uh, a little bit, Calvin more here with the real view, and then Zwingli was more along the lines of the memorial. So you had really good men with different views on this. So it lets you see that even in the ordinance of communion, good people, to a certain degree, can have differing opinions. You with me? In our attempts to make sure that we remember the Lord in the bread and the cup. By the way, that's been debated for centuries. Guess what? It's going to be debated for centuries. So if you think you can solve that, you won't, but you can at least know what you believe and land there effectively. He moves from this passage here, 23 to 26, I think, into 27 with a stark warning. He warns them that if they continue making it all about themselves, as he describes in 20 to 22, then there is a a sentence that will befall them because they're, they're guilty of something in that case. If they disobey 23 to 26, if they don't make it about the Lord, but they keep making it about himself, if it's not unifying but divisive, look at verse 27. If you eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, what does that mean? I think the context mandates that we have to define that phrase by verses 20 to 22. We're making it all about us. We're humiliating the church of God. We're despising its people. So if we were to take it in that manner, that's an unworthy manner, then we're guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. We're minimizing what really is the focus. That's his body, his blood, and we're making it about our own selves. He says here when that happens, that's an unworthy manner and we're guilty. And when someone's guilty, you get a sentence. Are you with me? Now this will be stark. This will be jarring. Listen very carefully. If we're guilty of that, here's the sentence. Verse 30. You can begin in verse 29, really. So if you eat and drink without discerning the body, which is tantamount to drinking and eating in an unworthy manner, then you drink judgment on yourself. That's what comes because you're guilty. And because you're guilty, here's the judgment, here's the sentence. Many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's just stark. There's no way around this verse. It's stunning. That within the New Testament church, those who refuse to examine themselves and then sin by making it all, making the Lord's table about them, the Lord will actually judge them through weakness, illness, and maybe even death. 
Now, we don't know when this occurs. Is it on the first time? I don't know. Is it on the 1500th time? I don't know. All we know from the text is this, that if we partake of the table in an unworthy manner, the Lord will judge us. And he'll do that, in, according to this text, in one of three ways. Illness, weakness, or death. Can I be so bold as to say this to you? I wonder if Kevin's testimony last week, Kevin, I'm just going to be really, really just kind of free here with you. You're okay, I know. I wonder if some of those things you were experiencing in those days of conviction, I don't know this because you were unregenerated from our testimony last week, but I, as I was thinking about this, I wonder if maybe some of that, um, you know, is God just moving on you? Because it could be conviction and not this. But, you know, as you were struggling in all those things, man, here the Lord is saying, I'm, I'm going to deal with people in this way if they're part of my family. I don't know, just something to think about. As I think about that situation, I do wonder this, though. Is this the reason some people in our church are consistently sick? Or weak? Could this be why someone in our church has died? I don't know. I'm not the grim reaper. But in just laying this verse out to you, it's a question worth asking. If you say, well, Todd, how would we know? I don't know that we would know, but let's just lay the scriptures out. If we're making the Lord's table about ourselves and trying to make it our table, and we're never repenting from that, we're never just purging ourselves from that attitude, then the situation is that God will judge us through weakness, illness, or death. I just think it's healthy for a church to kind of come up under this verse and say, wow, the communion table, the Lord's table, is is serious business. I thank my parents for instilling this in me when I did not even realize it. We were part of a brethren church when I was really small. I think it was probably between the grades like maybe two through five. Cindy, you can give me some more color if I need it. I'm not sure the exact date. She's old, my older sister's here and she can tell you more specifically, but we were part of a church called, uh, I think it's the Florence Chapel, is what it's called. We held communion every week, and I was a kid. I didn't know what they were doing, but we weren't allowed in, and so they would meet early before church, and it was closed communion, and so we would go upstairs to the balcony to a glassed window, and we would watch. I think that's what we did. All I know was we were watching, so when they would get done, we could have the leftovers. So, man, we would drink up with tons of grape juice every Sunday morning. I think sometimes my sisters and I Maybe friends, the Cozen boys, I'm not sure. But even amidst that humorous incident week after week as a kid, I remember thinking this, looking down and thinking, why can't I be part of that? Or man, why are they so reverent? Or why are they so sober? We moved to Chattanooga later, and we only observed communion there, I think maybe monthly, maybe quarterly, I'm not sure. And they didn't do it wrong. And then when, when we did it, it wasn't like it was done irreverently. I don't hear that at all. But I can remember as a junior higher thinking, we just don't do that as much and wondering, maybe it doesn't mean as much. Now, I don't think that was true about that church, okay? But I had those questions, which led me to realize as I got older, because that first church did it often, and because it was done in a way that was very sobering, I began to hold communion in very high regard. And I think that's what Paul's driving at here is communion is not a light matter. It shouldn't be about you 
or me. It's about the Lord and what He's done for us. These elements depict that and symbolize that and remember that. And so as we come to that table, that's the attitude we should have. Hey, it's not about me, it's about you. And anything less than that is an unworthy manner, and it's so serious that he'll sentence us for that sin. I don't know when that sentence occurs, okay? But I just want to warn you as a faithful pastor, don't take the Lord's Supper lightly. Do not partake in a manner unworthy, which would be making it all about you and not about him. Because you are, as the scripture says here, eating and drinking judgment on yourself. What should we do then instead? Well, I think he tells us in verse 28. You should instead examine yourself. Do you see that? The the sense of the text is if you'll examine yourself, then God won't have to. You should judge yourself, verse 31 says, so that we would not be judged. Which is why before communion... There should be a time period of some length in which we examine who this is really about. Now, in an ideal world, that's going to happen before we close the message and have a few minutes to do that, okay? I've heard some of you say, Todd, we need more time for examination. I actually agree with you, so take it before you get here. (laughs) Like, start, start that even before you arrive at church. Be thinking, I'm on the drive here. When you're in the initial songs, during the message, God, prepare my heart. Because if you're just thinking, well, oh, I've got to quickly do that in these, you know, 60, 90 seconds that the band's playing and we're moving, that is kind of quick. But that's not the only time you can prepare yourself and examine your heart, okay? So we're to examine ourselves, we're to to, to kind of discern our hearts, and then we're to eat and drink. Now, here's what that does not mean. Listen very carefully. I want to try to clear away some guilt. Examining yourself, discerning yourself, judging yourself, as the words in Scripture say, does not mean that you arrive at a place where, like, man, I am without sin. No one here is without sin. In fact, what we're remembering is actually going to bring many sins to your mind. And maybe no pastor's ever told you that, but most weeks, as I'm preparing, as I go to this table... My mind is flooded with just ways that I have violated the Lord's commandments. Ways I've hurt people. Typically, it's with my family because I'm sitting next to my wife and I'm like, man, I've sinned against her. I've sinned against my kids. And then I'm overwhelmed. It's like, you know what? But every single one of those is under the blood of Christ and the grace of God. And suddenly I'm realizing, wow, there's something powerful about communion. When in all of our vileness and sinfulness, God's righteousness just shines forth. And so I take the bread and drink the cup, thankful that God does not hold my sins against me. But do I sometimes think about them? Yeah, I do a lot. But not in order to do penance or to try to, in some self-effort way, make myself look better. I'm just like, wow, God, the cross is more beautiful than ever. So don't think that it means you're sinless. It does mean, though, that your attitude is one of humility and unity and repentance. That even knowing your sin, you're like, God, only through you is there forgiveness and grace. 
That's the worthy attitude. And by the way, that doesn't make us worthy. Only Christ makes us worthy. But it is an attitude that shows why we can partake because we know who makes us worthy. So that's kind of what's involved here. If you're thinking, well, I've got to have everything just like straightened out, cleared up. I can't have any issues going on. Man, who's ever there? Can we just say that? Is that okay, church? Who's ever there? But the attitude must be there. Like, God, will you keep working in me, keep refining me? It doesn't even mean that you have to be in, in total agreement with everyone in this room. Did you know that? I don't think that means that we're in unity. There are folks in this room, folks in my family. We see di- issues differently, but we take communion because that doesn't divide us. We just have differences. But if you're like, well, I'm going to make sure that our division is highlighted and folks see me as better. I'm going to use this as an opportunity for that. Then that's an issue. That's an unworthy manner because the table is not to highlight you or classify people. It's to highlight the Lord and showcase His grace for us. That make sense? So that's the attitude we're after. If that's in play, that's, I think, proper judging, proper examination, and then we can partake. I love this phrase at the end of verse 32. I'll mention this and then we'll be kind of wrap up this section of the four corrections. He says that when we're judged in this way, Notice this. This is intriguing. I can't preach on this today. It just takes more time. But he says that we're judged by God in this way. We're disciplined, is the word used in 32, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's a gracious, merciful comment. Church, are you reading this with me? He's saying that even in weakness, illness, or possibly death, it's God's way of making sure you're not condemned with the world. I don't fully get that yet, but in some way he's saying... I'm going to move to protect you even in my judgment. That's, that's, that's amazing to me. The, the, the phrase needs a lot more unpacking. But just understand, when God judges us for an unworthy attitude in communion, even that is a means of protecting us from what I would say here is a reference to hell. Condemnation with those who don't believe the world. A lot to unpack there I can't today, just like I can't unpack a lot about verse 19, which is very intriguing as well. But in God's judgment of those in the church who take it in an unworthy manner, it is for their ultimate good, which says to us a lot about God. Amen. He says in verse 33 then, here's another aspect of how to take it. He says, when you come together, then wait for each other. So I would summarize the two ways to be involved in communion as personal examination and then corporate sharing. Wait for each other. If you're hungry, eat at home. This is not the place to try to get your physical belly filled so that when you come together, it's not for judgment. Don't make it about you. Make it about the Lord and then wait for each other. In other words, do it in unity. In that day, they did it along with a meal, so it's probably why they had to wait. In our case, we're going to do it when we gather. So just some ideas there for how we go about this. We personally examine ourselves, and then we do it all at one time together. So do you see the four corrections here and how they lead us to understanding of the take-home truth? The warning, of course, excuse me, the, uh, the truth is they were making it about themselves. He says, no, it should be about the Lord. If you don't do that, there's a serious judgment that could fall upon you. So here's how to take it to make sure you avoid that judgment. Examine yourself and share with others. It leads us again to review the take-home truth, which is very simple. Would you say it with me uh, to kind of maybe wrap up this section? Communion is the church's act of declaring and delighting in the saving death of Christ. Eating in unity a meal that remembers who saves us eternally, marking us as distinct from the world. 
On the heels of that, let me see if we can address a few questions that may have got texted. I know we have several. We'll just run through these as quick as possible. And if you're an elder here, hang on. I might call on you. You never know, right? Does the Bible dictate the frequency of the Lord's Supper? It does not. It only uses one word, which is the word what? Often. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you're showing the Lord's death until he comes. Now, how often is often? It's a good question, right? There are some who think that often does mean weekly, based on Acts 27 and possibly 1 Corinthians 16, in which the phrase, the first day of the week is mentioned. In Acts 27, the church at Troas is mentioned, and it says that they gather on the first day of the week to break bread. So perhaps they were gathering on that first week, first day of the week to have communion, and that was a regular practice for them. If that was the regular practice, and Paul uses here the phrase, come together, could it be that in the Corinthian context, they came together once a week? We don't know that, but I will say this in that defense. I think it's 1 Corinthians 16 that describes a church who was gathering and learning how to give. And Paul says, when you come together on the first day of the week, set aside a portion of your offerings. So there are those who say come together equals the first day of the week. And so they would say it's very biblical to observe the Lord's table weekly. I would probably be in the camp that would say, you know what? It often is a little more freedom and flexibility than that. That's not a directive from Scripture to do it weekly. Some do it monthly, some quarterly, perhaps biweekly. We have freedom and flexibility there. Does that make sense? There are folks who have different views. You can have your own. But it doesn't seem the Scripture's dictate a specific time frame for communion? Good question. The next one is, are there certain food items required for the Lord's Supper? There aren't. In this text, it just simply says there is a a juice of some type. The New Testament phrase in the Gospels is the fruit of the vine. So whatever that means, that's what those used in the Lord's at the uh, Passover Supper. And then, of course, here, bread. We use a cracker to resemble the bread. Uh, We use grape juice. Some churches use wine. Others use a loaf of bread and they break it and they peel it off. And then those who have real sanitary concerns don't go to that loaf of bread and pick off from the same loaf. I've heard that before, you know. Other folks have one glass of wine or grape juice and they have a cloth beside it and they wipe the rim. They take their sip. Other folks divide it into little tiny cups like we do. And you try to drink it and you try to hold it and not drop it because it makes a crazy noise in our building. You know how all that works, right? There's all kinds of ways and different kinds of foods to use at communion. Some folks think you can only use unleavened bread. I don't think that's a New Testament directive. I think it may be a good idea in light of perhaps Old Testament patterns. I'm, I'm okay with that. We, I think these crackers we use are unleavened because they have zero taste to them, I believe. Uh, we have corn chips for those who need a gluten-free environment. But I don't think we're directed... On, the, on a specific type of food. We're just asked to have bread and some kind of juice or fruit of the vine. And I think beyond that, there's freedom, okay? Uh, I would say, if the environment is such that the food is getting the attention and not the Lord, that I would change the food. So maybe it's good that it's not very tasty. I don't know. I think the, the non-tastiness also makes us think of maybe something like death wasn't Tasteful. I kind of get all those impressions. I was in Mexico one time with a bunch of junior hires, and it was a very good trip. We were coming back from uh, ministry there, and I remember 
uh, in the El Cid Motel, somewhere near the border, just having a great worship service. And so we took old pizza crust and one can of Coke that we had, and we had communion. I don't recommend that as normative, okay? (laughs) Is it okay at times? I think in that case, I was within the biblical parameters. Would I want to do that every week? No, because suddenly that becomes the humorous portion of the meal, and people are wondering about pizza crust and Coke, and and it takes us off our focus. Are you with me? In the same way, I don't believe, this is about frequency again, I don't think it's normative or maybe the best for churches to observe communion in a lots of different small group environments. I don't think it's wrong. Maybe you have communion at a nursing home with some of our people. Maybe a small group has communion periodically. But I think the normative pattern goes through the five mentions of the words come together in these specific verses. By the way, if you go to 11 to 14, those chapters, it's mentioned even more. But I think that the normative regular pattern is when the church gathers, that's when you eat the meal. Because it's, it's, the point is we're unified in Christ, right? So I don't think it's wrong to observe it in smaller set, settings, but I don't think it should be the normative way we do it. So whether it's frequency or food items, it should not take away from the focus, which is the Lord's Supper and His sacrifice for us in His body and blood. Next question. Does communion have to be led by an elder or can a regular member lead? I don't think the scripture gives directives for this either. I think you're seeing there's a lot of room for flexibility even within the the mandates we have. Here's why we ask an elder to it first hand because we do see the communion time as potentially a teaching moment. And we believe that elders are the primary teaching um, platform, teaching agent of the church. When the church gathers, that's who should be teaching the church. And so that's why we use elders in that setting. I don't think that's a requirement, but in our setting, that seems to be the best fit for us. Good question. Let's keep moving here. I like these questions. This is good. Why do we do communion during service instead of a meal, just like the early church? Do we minimize the ordinance by not eating an actual meal? To the last question, no, I don't think we minimize it because scripturally, we're just directed for bread and cup. True? So we're not commanded for a meal. We're only commanded to make sure there's a bread and cup involved. So I don't think we're minimizing. But why do we not do a whole meal like they did? Because they were involved with a whole meal. It was called the love feast, by the way, in the Corinthian culture. It was the Passover in Christ's day. And even before that, he was following what the Lord laid out in Exodus. So we hear this from Aaron in a minute. He was following what the Lord laid out, how they were to remember his deliverance of them from Egypt through the blood of the Lamb. And so when Christ said, I'm now the Lamb, my blood is your deliverance, this is the blood of the new covenant, he's fulfilling the old covenant, he's now being the Lamb and the high priest, and he's saying, my blood is your means of deliverance and rescue. It's only in Christ. So they remember that in a meal. Acts 2 talks about how they broke bread in their homes. That could be a reference not only to eating, but also to the Lord's table. Uh, Acts 20 mentions it about the church at Troas. So I would say the reason we don't do it in a meal instead of uh, like we do it now is probably maybe it's, it's the best way for us to kind of garner the attention of the most of the church. We believe that the coming together should be something that happens and that when they come together, that's when communion should be. So if we did a potluck, I wouldn't be opposed to that at all. In fact, I'm always for a potluck. I'm like, let's do that. If we did communion during a potluck, we had to figure out how to make sure it wasn't divisive. 
how to make sure that we waited for each other, and then how that should make sure that the food didn't get to be the focus, but Christ's body was the focus and his blood. Does that make sense? We wouldn't be wrong for doing a potluck. I'd be up for trying it as long as we don't violate other principles. Like I wouldn't want, you know, Brett's small group to say, hey, we've got prime rib, filet mignon, and the best casserole in the world, so only our small group can eat at our table. Like that wouldn't be good. They should be willing to share. They shouldn't be looking at some other small group like maybe Josh's and saying, man, did you see the food Josh brought? Man, that's some weird stuff they got. Don't go to that table, right? Now you laugh at that, but in some sense, the Corinthian context was exactly that. You can't have mine. You got to find your own. I know where you're from. I know where you live. I know how you work. Like, hey, back off. So we just got to make sure we don't have any, any environment that promotes that type of division and instead says, hey, this is all about Christ for us. So I think that's why Paul said, What's essential is the, the juice and the bread because it symbolizes the body and the blood. Focus on that. But I'm up for a potluck if someone wants to organize it. Talk to me afterwards, okay? Next question. When and why did the complete meal get dropped? I don't know. In first service, one of our elders, Ed, mentioned that perhaps it got dropped because they were two distinct things to begin with. Though they happened simultaneously in one sense, like someone could eat a meal and have communion within that meal, Maybe the meal got dropped because it was a different thing they did. And so maybe it just became more normative. And I would even use the word in the right way, maybe more convenient to focus on the necessary elements of the bread and the cup and not try to always try to figure out how can we provide a whole meal for everyone. Maybe it was just a convenience thing. I don't know. Beyond that, we'll research it and see if we can get back to you. Are there any more questions? Okay. Man, out of 16, then we only got those four or five up there? Okay, must be a lot of repetition. If you have some more, text them in. I want to make one last comment and we'll move to communion for this morning. Because as we do it, often we think of this. Here's what we do in communion. We think about the present. Am I right with God? Is my attitude correct? Is this a worthy way to approach the table? And we think about our past. Would you agree with that? We tend to think about the present and the past. All that God saved me from. Am I right in the moment? And that kind of seems to occupy our focus. But actually in the scriptures... When we delight and declare in the saving death of Christ, we should have a future in mind as well. Because the Bible says we're to do this until he comes. Why is that? It's because of the promise that Jesus made when he observed it with his disciples. When he says, this is my body and this is my blood. And then he said, I'll not drink of this cup again until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So here's a good practice. When we're examining ourselves and judging ourselves and partaking in a worthy manner, yes, let's think about our present condition and how our past is still under the blood and grace. Amen. But as we do that, let's think, wow, this is only temporary that stale, kind of unsalty, nasty-tasting cracker, that little tiny juice in that cup that's hard to drink and hold, it's only temporary. Because I'm looking for the day when Jesus comes back and he drinks it with us in the kingdom that we're praying will come. You know, you are praying that, right, church? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I long for communion with Jesus in the kingdom, don't you? Here's how it's described in Revelation. The band can join me while I read this. 
Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linens, the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's at that marriage supper that Jesus will once again drink and eat with you. That's what we're looking forward to, amen? So yes, it's about the present in some ways and about the past. We look to Christ's death, so yes. But there's a day coming when we'll observe communion in the here and now kingdom of God. And church, I long for that day, don't you? So what do you say we examine ourselves now? Let's rightly judge ourselves and enter into remembering the Lord's death and proclaiming it until he comes. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons. Thanks for listening.